Let's dive straight into it. You can text your questions in to 703-844-9969. The number should be there on the screen for you. And tonight we're going to just really focus on Christianity and culture. And culture is very broad. Um, So specifically, uh, we are taking questions on uh, government and politics. And um, a lot of questions uh, that came in in January that we didn't necessarily get to was um, talking about the homosexual community, LGBTQ plus kinds of questions, um, questions on abortion, um, the whole gamut. So um, let's, uh, let's dive in, Dad, with a, a good question here um, talking about government. And um, it's a kind of a detailed question. So it says, uh, someone texted in, Daniel 2.21 says that God removes kings and sets up kings. Romans 13, 1 through 7, says that all government authorities are established by God. There's another passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 that talks about submitting to government. Um, further, the person says, 1 Samuel 15, 23, says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So in considering these four passages, was the American Revolution biblically legitimate? Hmm. So it's, it's a good question. Uh, and kind of just to summarize this, the Bible does have a lot to say about submitting to government and, to sum, and submitting to authority. The Bible says that God ordained and established government. And so when it, comes, when, when it comes to this kind of idea of, but what if government goes against what God's word says, how are we supposed to react? Because God ordains government. So should we just submit? And specifically, the person asks about the Amer- American Revolution. Um, obviously, that being a rebellion, uh, was, was that biblically legitimate? So you, you're the one that told me that John MacArthur came out with a statement saying he did not think that the American Revolutionary War was biblical. Right. Um, I didn't personally hear him say that, but, but you, you heard him say that in some recording? Yeah. So, I mean, I, it wouldn't be the first thing I disagree with about John MacArthur about, although he's, he's a godly guy, loves the Lord, and uh, he's a brother. Um, you know, when you, for, that's, a, it's a, that's a lot in that question. So right. let, me, let me just try to uh, um, recognize a couple of things. First, the quote about rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. That's specifically talking about rebellion against God. It's not specific about rebellion against government. There are times, now I'm not advocating this, I'm not, I'm not you know, encouraging this, but there are times where rebellion against government is actually a biblical thing. Um, it's called civil disobedience. We see it in Exodus chapter 1, when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, um, at, during the time when the Hebrew slaves were under his uh, a dynasty, that in order to control the slave population, the Pharaoh king of Egypt order, ordered all the Hebrew midwives to murder, it was infanticide, to murder baby boys who were born to the Hebrew women. And the midwives defied the king's orders, said, we, we, we fear God, we can't, we can't do this. So that's civil disobedience. Um, in Daniel chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, ordered Daniel and Azariah and, and uh, uh, Mishael and Hananiah to bow down to his idol. And they're like, no, that's, that's idolatry. We can't do that. And so they defied the king's orders. Now, you know, they ended up being thrown into a lion's den, uh, or the fiery furnace, rather. Daniel would in the, later in the lion's den. Um, but 
and God preserved them, and that doesn't always work out that way. But there are examples in the Bible of civil disobedience. Whether or not the American Revolutionary War is biblical, I guess that is up to interpretation. When I think about historically the American Revolutionary War, there were pastors who were on the front line of the American Revolutionary War. So if it was unbiblical, then you had some pastors who must not have understood their Bibles. And I don't, I don't believe that they misunderstood their Bibles. You had, you had guys like William Emerson, who was a pastor of the church in Concord, Massachusetts. Jonas Clark, the pastor of the church in Lexington. You had John Peter Mullenberg, pastor of the church in Woodstock. These are in Woodstock, Virginia. And they all were a part instrumental in leading the men from their church in fighting the Revolutionary War. You know, at the Battle of Lexington, when the British came and they demanded, you know, there is, there's um, uh, William Emerson, or, or sorry, Jonas Clark, the pastor of the church in Lexington, leading his men out there at Lexington, and the British demanded, throw down your arms in the name of the King of England. And they said, we have no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. This was a revolution against religious tyranny. This was a revolution against oppression. There was, you know, there was more things involved in it, but these were pastors who took their men on the front line of battle because they were fighting for religious liberty that was uh, being denied by the King of England among these colonies. You know, when John Peter Mullenberg, when he led men out of his uh, church in Woodstock, Virginia, it became the 8th Virginia Brigade, which is still functioning today. And Mullenberg took off his black clerical robes to reveal underneath a, a, uh, an army officer in the Continental Army at a uniform, and he preached out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 3. There's a time for peace and there's a time for war, and today's a time for war. So, you know, today we can debate something from 1775 and 1776. I'm going to defer to the men of that day to understand, particularly among those pastors, there is sometimes necessity to rise up against government, and that was one of them. And, um, you know, God help us if we think that government is always right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, other pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, he he was one of few pastors in Germany who rose up against Hitler and said Nazism is wrong. Now, they executed him for it. They executed him at the age of 39 in 1945. But he rose up against what he knew was tyranny. And, and oppression and wrong uh, in government. And he paid a supreme price for it. Um, but uh, there are times when it's necessary to, to engage in civil disobedience against government when they are, when they are um, doing anything that's against God's word, which is the highest authority, mm-hmm. and, and or when they're doing anything to oppress the people especially in the area of religious freedom. So that's a long answer, but um, I personally think the American Revolutionary War is justified, and, um, and I think we need to be wise about um, not always just, you know, believing that everything government says is necessarily right. I want to continue the political conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Continuing this, this political discussion, um, there's just a pretty straight-up uh, question someone asks. How do we biblically respond when other Christians say that we shouldn't get involved in politics? And the person brings up a, a specific example, a personal example, saying, My mom and my aunt recently, recently began studying with Jehovah's Witnesses, 
and they've said that they don't think I should be voting nor participating in anything political. And I know that that's, that's not just, you know, I don't know if that's a particular thing to Jehovah's Witnesses, Dad. You would, you would know better than I, but uh, even just a lot, of, a lot of churches are just, you know, we don't go into the political fray. And so what would your response be to someone who is um, a believer? And I know, you know, I don't want any, anyone to mistake that I'm throwing Jehovah's Witnesses into that category of yeah. as believers, but what would, what would you say to someone who is a believer, a Christian, but saying that, you know, we don't, we don't want to get involved in, well, in first, political they need to stop taking advice from Jehovah's Witnesses, whoever that yeah. is, okay? That's the first thing to say, um, because they're, they have a different set of beliefs, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Jesus that we believe of the Bible, so, so their foundation for truth is already skewed, um, I love people who are Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon. I want to I win them to Christ, but their Jesus is not the same Jesus as the Bible. So that's the first thing. I get often people commenting. I get emails on a regular basis whenever I, whenever I say anything remotely political. And, you know, I don't, I don't see myself as political, honestly. And this isn't semantics. I just see myself as biblical. Right. And when you start talking the Bible and you start talking about social issues and you start talking about, you know, God's view about right and wrong, you're going to touch on issues that are political in our world. Right. That doesn't make me political. Yeah. And especially when you look at the way, and I have been, I've been railing against Loudoun County Public Schools recently. And I want to always say, I, I, I respect that there are some wonderful educators and administrators and bus drivers in the school system. But when you have a school board that is advancing policies like 80-40, redefining biology and God's design of gender, and allowing students to pick whatever gender they want, guess what? When I talk out against that, that's not being political. That's just saying, hey, here's what the Bible says. Do you know that God created male and female in his image? End of discussion. And so when people say, well, that's political. No, it's not. It's just being biblical. And we have a heart for people who have gender confusion, and we want to get them counseling. But it is doing them a horrible disservice to embrace and celebrate their confusion. So at some point, people have to be truthful. And when you get truthful, because you're just being biblical, people go, you're political. That, that said, there's just, you, you just you'd have to throw out a bunch of your Bible to say that the church just shouldn't be political. Every prophet of the Old Testament addressed the kings, addressed the kings, confronted the kings. Even into the New Testament, John the Baptist stood up against Herod, confronted him about his own immorality and his own life. If we were to draw the lines about, well, people of faith shouldn't be engaged in political discourse or government things, then John the Baptist should have kept his mouth shut, I suppose. Now, in the end, it got his head cut off. You know, there are prices to, to pay when you step into the, the, you know, the arena where people think you shouldn't be. But how can the church be silent when it comes to all of these issues that are, quote, political? Much of what the world has done is politicize the issues that are biblical. So I think to remain silent is not to be salt and light. And for Christians to be disengaged from the political discussion and arena uh, by either not voting or not running for office or saying that the church should be silent on the subject 
is, is just not really being the salt and light that God has called us to be, to really have a penetrating influence in our world. And politics, like it or not, politics and government, government, by the way, one of three things that God ordained, government, the church, and family. And politics and government shape policies, and policies affect your lives. So right. why shouldn't Christians speak into the policies of the day to affect our lives? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I'm not a dominionist. I have no illusion to think that we can just all of a sudden, you know, become a theocracy. Okay, that's not going to happen until Jesus comes. Okay, but in the meantime, we should at least advance the cause of righteousness and lift up the voice of the church to make our values known so that life can be more enjoyable according to God's standard and have that influence in our world, in our culture. So I get, you know, people are a little, a little concerned about, you know, those lines and stuff, but I just don't see those lines in the Bible when I think about how we are called to integrate faith into every aspect of life. And I really get tired of hearing people say, well, talk to me about the Bible related to the family and talk to me about the Bible related to finances and talk to me about the Bible about marriage, but don't talk to me about the Bible and politics. It's just like, where all of a sudden are you drawing that line? It's all, it's all of life that we should understand through the grid of God's word. It's good, dad. I love that. I love it. Um, so many good questions. So I'm just going to continue to rattle these off, Dad. And someone has a question. Do you have to be a Republican to be a Christian? Can you be a Democrat? <laughs> you know, the party system is flawed. And um, <laughs> that's a funny question, but I get where it's coming from. Look, I, you know, I said this in my election sermon prior to the 2020 election. You just need to be wise about what your party believes what their platform is. And there's no perfect platform because no party platform is the Bible, okay? But we should look at what are the values and the platform and the policies of a party and whether or not it more closely aligns with the Bible. And then, and then decide where you want to fall in that camp. I, um, I have serious concerns about a party that supports and advances abortion. I have serious concerns about a party that supports and advances gay marriage. Those things are, are thumbing a nose at God. And for people to say, well, I'm not a single-issue voter, and so even, I'm just going to kind of hold my nose. Those things stink, but I'm going to still vote for a party. It's like, you know, I'll be the first to say I'm, I'm happy to be a single-issue voter. I, I have no problem saying if you have 10 wonderful things on a platform and, and one of them, uh, the 11th, is about murdering babies, I'm going to forget the whole platform. Like, I can't. I can't take the whole thing. So, um, and, and, you know, tragically, the, both parties are different from what they were a generation or two ago. Um, and, and, and that's sad because both parties, I think, have in some ways um, incorporated some, um, some worldliness in, into, their, into their platforms that, that shouldn't be there. And so um, I, I'm really not about parties as much as some people might think I am. I'm more about what, what more closely aligns with our biblical values. And, and, um, and, and, and sometimes you are literally choosing the lesser of two evils. I mean, it's, it's a worldly system. And sometimes you just are. 
Uh, you guys are sending in some good questions. Continue to send them in, 703-844-9969. Uh, Dad, this question has to do with immigration. Um, and someone asks, immigration is, an another, is another extremely sensitive subject. As believers, should we view the issue of immigration more like health care or more like abortion? And I think what they mean by that is health care might be more up to debate. Um, abortion seems more biblically concrete. You know, God is for life not for abortion. So um, as believers, should we view this issue more like health care, um, maybe a little bit more subjective, or more like abortion, more objective? Are there any hard biblical truths that should inform our policy position or personal posture? If so, what are they? So a, a few things come to mind. Um, first, like it or not, the truth is when you look in the Bible, God is into borders. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just is. I mean, even, even the land of Israel was divided among the 12 tribes, and they each had borders. They had territories. So, um, you know, the only one who's not into borders in the Bible is the Antichrist. There's going to be a one-world government and a one-world leader, and the Bible predicts that. It is, it is Antichrist to just try to assume authority, global authority. And, and by the way, this, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. But uh, some of you are probably very aware about how the World Health Organization is trying to secure sovereignty among all the nations of the world um, as a way of having control, having global control. Um, The Biden administration put forward either 12 or 13 amendments to a recent Uh, document that the World Health Organization had drafted, which, from what I understand, did not pass. But I'm thinking, like, how how many attempts will it take until it does? It would have surrendered United States sovereignty to the World Health Organization. And, you know, for the first time, I'm thinking about, I've always kind of wondered how in the end times... You know, the Bible talks about a 10-nation confederation. The Bible talks about how the world, I'm going to get back to the question. You might have to remind me because I am rabbit trailing right now. But the Bible predicts that the world will fall under 10 geographical regions. And and nation borders will become blurred and nations will will become under regions, 10 regions. And each region will have a, a leader. And then the Bible says that these 10 will end up deferring their power to one among them who will end up being the Antichrist and have global domination. And so for the first time, as I'm thinking about what the World Health Organization is attempting to do, um, it started to make sense. Like if nations start to surrender their power, their authority to the World Health Organization, and then another pandemic comes along. And the World Health Organization gets to shut down things based on their accumulated power and authority. Um, how easy it will be in the end times for the world powers to come under 10 regions and then eventually one. So I don't know if that plays into it. But man, when I started reading about this and hearing about what the World Health Organization is, is trying to do, it just started to make sense. Um, as it relates to immigration... You know, it's a very sensitive subject. We hate to see, for example, children separated from their parents. 
We hate to see what some immigrants are doing by, by pushing their children across the border and they themselves are betraying their own children. It's, it's a very terrible crisis on our border. But all I know is in the Bible, God is for nations. He is for borders. He's for boundaries. He's also for law and order. I know that becomes a buzz term in our own culture, but we are a nation of law and order. And so, you know, I want people to be able to come into America freely. But when you look at the Bible, we, we have, we are a nation whose very jurisprudence was founded on, on Judeo-Christian law. Mm-hmm. Um, Blackstone's commentary on law was derived from scripture. So, you know, we, we should be a law-abiding people. And when I, when I see what's happening, the chaos on the border, just like, you know, come on over, it just doesn't seem like we're being a people that recognize borders and we're being a people that recognize laws. My dermatologist is Vietnamese, and he told me that he's so upset about what's happening on the border from a personal standpoint. He said, my grandfather was a translator for the United States during the Vietnam War, a translator for the United States. And he said, even it took him 30 years before he could get into the United States. And he said, it just grates me to see people coming over and being, you know, encouraged to come over when my family had to wait decades to do it the right way. And so what is happening in the United States of America? It just is a mystery to me how we become a nation, at least on the border, yeah. uh, without laws. And in the same conversation as well, God, the Bible says God loves the foreigner. And takes care of the and foreigners and the aliens. The foreigners. Exactly. And so I think it's more of a question of we love legal immigration. Sure. Um, we discourage illegal immigration. We discourage God, anything illegal. God has a heart for the foreigner, takes care of the foreigner, and so should we as well. Exactly. And we, we should yeah. have a, a, a compassionate heart. But compassion doesn't necessarily mean that we have to compromise on law. Yeah. Um, Dad, this is a good question that someone uh, sent in. How should we deal with policies in our job? Uh, for example, required trainings that we don't fully agree with. That's a tough one. I'm telling you what. I got several emails, um, for example, um, from Inova, Inova nurses. Maybe some of you are here. And uh, if we haven't already gotten back to you, we will. Um, because several nurses um, got their religious exemption by Inova about re- regarding the vaccine, and it was considered a permanent religious exemption. And just recently, like within the last several weeks, they have revoked all the religious exemptions, and all the nurses now are being required to be vaccinated or resubmit religious exemption, and many of their new religious exemptions are getting turned down. And so here they are, like, you know, what am I to do? Like, this is a policy, um, and so my job is on the line or other kinds of policies like diversity training policies that some of your companies mandate you go through and stuff. I think, you know, all I could really say to you is in whatever situation you find yourself, okay, and this kind of goes back to authority. Um, you know, when you work at a company, you, you are under the authority of that employer, um, until that employer asks you to do something that violates your, your sincerely held religious beliefs. And at that point, you have to make a decision. 
And I, I wish I could give you a wave a magic wand and make it work out for you. But unfortunately, that might mean for some of you that you're either going to get fired or you're going to have to quit yourself because they're asking you to do something that's against your conscience or you refuse to do something because it's against your conscience and they fire you. I, I just don't have an answer for it. We're living in a, in a day where um, your, your sincerely held religious beliefs are going to get challenged and you're going to have to do your best to fight for your religious freedom. And at the end of the day, if, um, if it means you can't stay there, then you, then you can't stay there. And we'll just have to um, pray with you that God opens up another door for you because it's a, it's a difficult thing. I, the bottom line is you have to have clear conscience. Have a clear conscience. And if, if you're being asked to do something on the job that is a violation of your clear conscience, especially as a follower of Christ, you, you, just, you just can't do it. And God will take care of you when you honor him. I want to um, kind of um, switch gears a little bit and focus for the next few minutes on um, the LGBTQ plus questions that you all are sending in. And um, I'll start off with this one, Dad. Someone texted in, what should be our response as Christians to our LGBT friends who argue that love is love? And you, you all have heard that phrase, very popular phrase. And um, it's, it's a phrase used um, so that you will affirm someone's lifestyle. Um, so love is love. Um, so what should our response as Christians be to our homosexual friends who use that argument. Love is love. And in, in, other, in other words, you know, let me live my life. Right. Love is love. You right. should affirm, be affirming of this. Right. Um, it, it's going to come down to your belief system. If you really believe the Bible is the basis for your belief system, then you are going to recognize that God calls homosexuality sin. And um, if you operate from that standard, from that description, from that definition then um, it's a matter of how do I communicate truth in love? Being loving is not denying the truth. That's, that's a very unloving thing. Being loving towards somebody is figuring out a sensitive way to communicate the truth. It's a very unloving thing to say, well, I'm just, I'm just going to you know, affirm them and, and not really you know, tell them the truth. So, you're not doing them any good, and you're, and you're not being honest before the Lord or, or to yourself. I've said this many times, and it is worth repeating. In the past, the church has not done a very good job on this topic of homosexuality, because I think when I say the church in general, I just mean, you know, Christians sometimes have either come at it from one of two extremes. They're either really harsh against homosexuals, or they're like this. They're just like really affirming and it's no big deal and God loves everybody. And the truth is, it's really easy to live in the extremes of life and to live in extreme conversations. I mean, that's easy. What's hard is to find that balance in the middle where you're communicating the truth in love. And it, to affirm somebody in their sin is just lying to them. Now, they may not receive it, they may not accept it, try as best as you might, and, but that's not on you. What's on you is, how can I communicate this with sensitivity and love without affirming what is wrong? Um, just the fact 
that you might hold the belief that homosexuality is wrong, you're going to be labeled. You're going to be labeled a hater, intolerant, a bigot, whatever it might be. And the world will label you. And you can't control that. All you can control is, I want to honor God and I want to always be truthful. And so I'm going to look for a gentle and sincere way to communicate truth when necessary, when it comes up. But um, I don't think we should ever affirm anyone for whatever the sin might be. You just can't affirm someone for whatever their sin might be. So take homosexuality off the table for a moment. Whatever the sin might be. You know, if, if somebody is a, a pathological liar, well, that's okay, everybody lies. Why are you saying that? Like, you know, or, or somebody, you know, is a gossip, or somebody is in, in premarital heterosexual sex. Like, well, that's okay, you know. Uh, you know, we all have urges. I mean, like... Like, why are we compromising the truth for the sake of just appeasing people? So it, mm-hmm. it can be difficult, um, especially because our world and our culture has now affirmed something that God does not. It's really easy to confront someone, even if you do it in a loving way, about something that uh, the culture and God both agree on. Um, you know, for the most part, culture would say cheating on your marriage is wrong. And God says cheating on your marriage is wrong. So it's, it's a little bit easier when you're confronting someone to say, you know, you're cheating on your wife and that isn't right. And they'll be like, yeah, I know, you're, you know, you're right. Okay. It's much harder when you're, when you're taking a stand for something that is true, okay, according to God's word, a standard that is true, but the culture is saying the opposite. And, and, and so it's difficult, but it still doesn't take away the fact that we have to be truth tellers in a loving, gentle, respectful way. Yeah, I mean, the phrase love is love is not a very stable motto to stand on. I mean, we, we love, I love a lot of things that are not beneficial for right. me. Um, my daughter, she's four, she loves to run in the middle of the road. Right. And if she just said, hey, love is love, let, let me do, you know, why would you infringe on what I love to do? Well, it's because I know that there are harmful consequences to her love for running in the middle of the road. Um, and so you love Krispy Kreme donuts. Now, to indulge in a lifestyle of Krispy Kreme donuts, there might be some harmful consequences to that, Dad. I've been trying to warn you about that. <laughs> I actually um, encouraged you as a child to run in the street, but I didn't. <laughs> Didn't work out. <laughs> well, the didn't work out. Um, my my mother loved me. Um, <laughs> no, um, but so to say, well, love is love um, means you should affirm everything right. that I I want or desire. That's not true love. It's not true love. True love is to will the good of another. So what is good? Well, we f- we find what's good in Scripture, mm-hmm. and and God says uh, how we should flourish in um, our sexuality. And, um, and in relationships. Um, Dad, someone is asking about same-sex attraction, um, saying, what if we have, um, what if we're attracted to uh, both genders? Is same-sex attraction a sin? And where, where do you draw that line? You know, there, the, there are a lot of things that we might be drawn to um, in, in our hearts. And... Um, 
the one thing that we have to guard against is acting on it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to have certain feelings. Um, but, you know, the Bible, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he said, um, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So we need to rein in our thought life. But the real key is you might have unnatural thoughts. Um, there can be a variety of unnatural, sinful thoughts that we have. The main thing is you don't act on it, you don't give in to it, you take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So at the thought level, as long as you are not, you know, taking it to a place of fantasy and and lust, um, at a thought level, that's not going to be sinful. It's at the behavioral level that's going to be sinful. You know, I think it was Martin Luther who said, said, um, I cannot control the birds flying over my head, but I can control whether or not they make a nest in my hair. You know, so there, there are a lot of things that are going to come in my head, and I can't always control that, and some of those desires or thoughts are wrong, uh, um, but, I, but the main thing is don't let it take root, don't let it nest, and don't act on it. That's the main thing. Mm-hmm. Fight those, those you know, thoughts and, and those desires that aren't pleasing to the Lord. Someone texted in a good question, Dad. How do we protect our children against the push for the acceptance of sexual fluidity in their generation and future peer groups? And that's coming from a heart of a parent asking, um, you know, how do we protect our kids? A lot of, a lot of us have, have kids in the public school system, and, um, and not even, you know, it's not even just the public school system. It's on TV. It's, it's, it's on our media. It's on our you know, children's you know, media stations on different shows. Um, it's, you know, going over to the neighbor's house. Right. Um, how do we protect our kids against the, the push for this, the acceptance of sexual fluidity? And, uh, I mean, it's all, it's all around us. Yeah. And so now, you know, your teenager typically has a handheld device and, uh, you know, they're listening to my Miley Cyrus and, and uh, Demi Lovato, is that her name, Demi Lovato? Who's the other singer? I knew you listened to them. Well, <laughs> because I had to scrub them off of See, your phone. Listen, I listen, I, I listen to like, Michael W. This? Smith and oh, Stephen Curtis yeah, right. Chapman. Yeah, you don't even know who they are. You're just floating around names now. Um, but it's Demi Lovato, right? Yes. And she's very yeah. like, I'm asexual, and so is Miley Cyrus. So yeah. in other words, my point is, like, you know, the culture today is, is really, uh, um, you know, it's just in your face and it's like unavoidable. So all you can do as parents, you pray a lot for your kids and, you know, it is okay to like shelter them as best as you can. And, you know, for people who are like, well, I don't want to shelter my kid. I want them to, you know, at least be able to know about the real world. They'll find out in plenty of time. Like you don't need to hasten that. And, uh, and so there, I remember, um, so your brother, so Tyler, so he's here somewhere. So Tyler, Tyler, you know, we grew up in a, we tried to shelter you kids as best as we could. And, and in fact, I'm still surprised you, you, you have two kids. I don't know how you figured that out. But, uh, but anyway, um, but one time Tyler came down to the breakfast table. He's like a freshman in high school. He had a, 
a T-shirt that his mom had bought with just an innocent, I'm not going to say what the T-shirt was. It was very innocent, but the T-shirt had a double meaning. And because I'm not that innocent, I looked at it and I'm like, that has a terrible double meaning. You cannot wear that shirt. And he's like, what? I didn't even know. And so I'm like, yeah, take the shirt off. You're not wearing that to school. Um, you know, and, my, and I don't know where I was going with that, except just to say that... Um, you know, oh, just, you can shelter your kids as best as you can, and they're still going to, you know, eventually have to come to grips with the evils of the world. But you don't have to expose them at an early age. That's what's key. When kids get exposed to things at an early age, that's where it's much more detrimental. So, yes, as parents, you shelter them as much as you can for as long as you can until they have to, you know, engage in the real world, and you pray over them, and you do your best and you trust God to protect their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. But because it is everywhere now, it is absolutely unavoidable at some point. And, um, and so when it comes to, like, specifically that question about gender fluidity, you know, you just need to raise your kids in the ways of the Lord and, and tell them, despite what the rest of the world says, you just have to have this kind of conversation. Despite what the rest of the world says, despite what people say is okay, here's what... Genesis 1.27 says, in his image, God created them male and female. And you just, you know, you take them through the Bible and you just say, look, this is what God says. We love other people who think differently, but they're not following the truth. And God's word is the truth. And so stick with that and you pray for them. That's all you can do. I want to um, ask you just one more question, Dad, to wrap up this topic and then we'll move on to another topic in the last like five minutes we have but um, kind of just to close this specific topic talking about LGBTQ plus kind of things um, how how can we as believers best minister to those in living those kind of lifestyles in those type of same-sex relationships our our job is as the church um, like you said is we, we haven't done the, the church large C, um, yeah. we haven't done the best job of um, ministering to that community. Um, and so what, what would just be some practical things for those of us who maybe we know someone at work or our neighbors or someone in that lifestyle, how can we best minister to them? Um, one of the things I would encourage you, especially if you have a, a family member who is in a same-sex relationship or wrestling with with same-sex attraction, um, get a a book by Dr. Christopher Ewan, Y-U-A-N is his last name, Y-U-A-N. And he wrote a book called Out of a Far Country. And he talks about his own exodus out of the homosexual lifestyle. He was an agnostic drug dealer. Um, He ended up becoming a dentist and a a believer. And and he writes about his, his journey and and the relationship with his parents. And so you might find that, that book helpful, Dr. Christopher Ewan, Out of a Far Country. Um, you know, in, in, in dealing with people who are in a homosexual lifestyle, it, it really is a matter of just trying to be people of grace and, um, you know, loving them, um, showing them, you know, respect as human beings. All of us deserve that kind of respect as human beings, even if their lifestyle uh, might be contrary to God's design. And uh, continue to pray for them and be a good witness, you know. Invite them to church, um, you know, help them to, you know, be open to understanding God's view of it. And um, in, 
when it's at the end of July. I'm trying to remember the date too. I have Patty Height coming mm-hmm. um, on a Wednesday night, uh, the end of July. Um, I'll get that date for you. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll find it. Yeah, look at it. It's it's. Um, I think it's the last Wednesday of July, and she has the same story where she came out of a homosexual lifestyle. Um, living with a woman in a in a in a relationship, July twenty seventh, July twenty seventh, so Wednesday night, and um, so she'll be here sharing her testimony, ministering to people. She has a ministry, I think it's called Out of, Out Egypt. of Egypt, and um, and so you know find resources like that um, as and and then just continue to be people of grace who who stand for the truth and and show love and respect to people. I did a Q and A with her. Um, a couple of months ago, asking her these same kinds of questions. How can we minister to the homosexual community? Uh, you can find that question and answer on our, um, on our YouTube channel, um, and you can just type in in the search engine, Cornerstone Chapel, Patty Height, Austin Hamrick, um, and that, that was really beneficial um, for me, and uh, she was really helpful in answering those questions. Mm-hmm. Two, good, uh, two other good resources um, I'll just give a shout-out to on this conversation. Um, both written by Sean McDowell. He wrote a good book called Chasing Love, Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. So that's called Chasing Love by Sean McDowell. And another book called The Beauty of Intolerance by Sean McDowell, The Beauty of Intolerance. Um, Moving on in the last few minutes, Dad, unless you want to wrap things up, because we're almost out of time. Go ahead, let's do some quick ones. Some quick ones here. Um... Oh, I don't know if this is a quick one. Uh, um, The conversation around racism has changed a lot in the Christian community in the last few years. Um, How are we supposed to view things like critical race theory, CRT, racism? What's the church's stance on BLM, CRT? A lot of those questions. That That is not a quick answer. I know, I know. (laughs) Well, actually, I can give a quick answer, but I don't have the date in front of me now. I think August the 10th. It's another Wednesday night. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, John Amakachu, is going to come. He just wrote a book called Erased. It's E-R-A-C-E-D. And um, as himself, as a black man, he talks about critical race theory. He talks about BLM. And he talks about one of the greatest, um, um, and I mean greatest in an awful way, one of the greatest deceptive, um, murderous things propagated against Americans is the fact that, and you you can document this, okay, Planned Parenthood set up clinics particularly near black communities. Now listen to this statistic, and John told me this. Um, The black population of the United States is about 13%. The black population of ovulating women Okay, because that's part of the topic. Ovulating black women in the United States, 3%. But they account for 40% of the abortions in the United States of America. And why is that? Because Planned Parenthood has targeted the black community. That is not an overstatement, friends. And John will document that when he comes on August the 10th. So there, we, we live in a, in a world where um, the church has... August 17th. Sorry, thank Are you sure? That's 17th? what is on his website. That's on his website? Yep. Well, I'm going to make sure that I don't have a conflict with that. and just or, wanna, um, I'm going to confirm it. 
August, it is, you're right, it is August 17th. Okay, thank you for that. I knew I was useful. Well, something. you got one thing right in your life, that's great. Uh, uh, but anyway, the church is the only group of people that have the right answer on race. You know what it is? We are all equal in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. And there is, and, and amen. And um, Jesus died for all because he loves all. And so the church should be the most loving and, um, and unified um, body of people, regardless of race or ethnicity or nationality, because we're all united under the lordship of Jesus Christ for as many as follow him and love Jesus. So that is a, a major topic, but I've given a whole night to it. That's Wednesday night, August the 17th with John Amanchakua. And his book is called Erased, Erased. E-R-A-C-E-D. Yeah, and he'll have it here because it's, it's not published until like the first week of August. Yeah, we're the first can, church. I think you can pre-order it, pre-order it now. I think you can, but, and yeah. we're going to be the first church where um, he speaks when, when the book is available. So awesome. you'll, you'll enjoy him. He's a powerful preacher, he's a, and he's a big dude, too. He played football for... Uh, now, I would insult and, him if I gave him the wrong NC school. NC State? Is that, is that right? I think you're right. I think it's NC yeah. State. All right. Is that it for tonight? That's all the time we've got. Has everybody had fun tonight? Yeah. yeah? All right. And we didn't even once talk about essential oils. We how could about, have. How we about you have. pray without mentioning essential oils? Oh, thank you, Lord, for peppermint and oh, wow. deep blue. Okay. Uh, Father God, we thank you for the time that we've been able to have together in your house. Um, We love you, Lord, and we don't have all the answers, but you do. And so I pray that we collectively would continue to dive deep into your word, Lord. Um, John chapter 14, you tell us that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. So I pray that you would fill us full and fresh with your Holy Spirit as we leave this place, Lord, that we might be able to discern between truth and error in a very confusing culture. Lord, we lean on you, we look to you, we rest on you and your word, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Uh, Thank you for dying on the cross for our sin, Lord. We now live our lives by honoring you in obedience. Pray for um, this church that you continue to protect us and guide us and guard us, Lord, as we leave this place. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.